Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up this week, another Grammy nominee and a Grammy winner, Robert Glasper. Robert is a pianist, producer, and songwriter. He's worked with Kanye West, Common, Jay Dilla, and others. He's also responsible for some outstanding keyboard work, like on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. So far in his career, he's earned three Grammy Awards and is up for another two this year. Best R&B Song for Better Than I Imagined, and Best R&B Album for, and we will have to bleep this, Your Feelings. When I talked with him in 2012, he'd just released one of his most acclaimed albums to date, Black Radio. Black Radio blends jazz, R&B, and hip-hop in an elegant and effortless way. It's more like a soul record played by a jazz combo. It features vocals from Erica Badu, Yasin Bey, the former Mostef, and Glasper's longtime friend, Bilal. Here's one of my favorite tracks from it, a cover of David Bowie's Letter to Hermione. He makes you laugh, he brings you out in style. He treats you well, he makes you a real fun. And when he's strong, he's strong for you. And when you kiss us, it's something new. But did you ever call my name just by mistake? I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do. So I just write some. Robert Glasper, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. So you were literally spent a lot of time as a kid backstage at clubs with your mom on stage? Yes, my mom on stage. Um, random waitresses coming in, checking on me. <laughs> as long as she was like, you know, within a seven walk, seven stride, walk stride to me. She was, she was rather, she rather that be the case than just be at some strange babysitter's house. You know, <laughs> back then, I don't even think they had nanny cams back then. So, <laughs> you know, she was not about to have people watching me. If my grandmother couldn't do it, then I was with her. I so, like that there's a specific distance. It, like, yeah, it's like seven, an seven strides type yeah. situation. Seven strides. It has to be seven. Definitely. Seven what, or less. What was it like for you to be backstage when you were, you know, not even <laughs> of age? Uh, it was fun for me. For me, it was it was, it was was uh, interesting. And I loved, I've always loved music. So I was just listening to the music. I got, you know, I would get a chance to watch, watch the musicians. And, you know, that she was always having rehearsals at the house, too. And so I would always be around the rehearsals. And, you know, so it was just a, it was a really cool world for me. It wasn't ever like burdensome to you. It didn't ever feel like, oh God, more music. I guess I have to. I have to practice my piano. No, because I wasn't even. Uh, funny thing is, I wasn't even playing piano then. I didn't start playing piano until I was in, like eleven. Um, I was really. I was actually playing drums when I was like seven. Um, I had a drum set and I would practice the drums a little bit. But I don't know. I loved being around the music, but I didn't really tap into it like hey i want to do it till till a little bit later what do you think changed i don't um me not making the basketball team because <laughs> <laughs> i literally like i auditioned for a um a performing arts high school my freshman year and i got in for piano 
but I declined to go because I wanted to play basketball at the regular high school. So I stayed at the regular high school. I went to the regular high school and rode the bench the whole year. And I realized, uh, you know what? I'm probably, let me try out this piano thing. <laughs> so then I went to the regular. Then I went to the performing arts high school, and that's kind of where I got more serious. But if if you grew up with your mom playing all different, I mean, playing you know playing as a working musician and the kind of working musician who you know, is a kind of local working musician, which is to say, plays whatever kind of music there is a gig for. Right. Um, then you, then you're in a situation where you have to have, you know, you sort of by necessity have a basic fluency in everything. Exactly. And that becomes a norm for you, you know, to not have fluency in everything becomes like abnormal. So that's kind of how I got it. I think that's how I got it. Because all I know is, Random. <laughs> Randomness, you know? And um, to me, the random, I embraced the randomness and it became, you know, um, normancy, if you will. What kind of music did you love when you were 14 years old? Um, 14. What is 14? Ninth grade? Um, I loved, actually, I loved pop rock music. I love Billy Joel. I love Bruce Hornsby. I love Bonnie Raitt. Um, and I loved hip-hop as well. I was a Tribe Called Quest fan. Um, and I loved a lot of Keith Jarrett at that time period. I think, you know, few are the, few are the guests on our show who don't say that when they were 14, they loved Keith Jarrett, A Tribe Called Quest, and Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> That would literally be like a mixtape. I used to make tapes to listen to in my car. And I'm sure that all those were on there at, together. My mixtapes were very random. My friends would get in my car and be like, huh? <laughs> they, they, they'd be like nodding to the Tribe Called Quest, but you keep riding. And in about 10 minutes, you know, I'm going to hit you with, you know, turn down the lights. When you, you were know. on the basketball team at the regular high school, Yes. And you're in the, you know, and and you're in the uh the locker room and you have a tape deck and you press play on a Bonnie Raitt tape. What did right. everyone think? <laughs> That's where headphones come in. <laughs> I never really let that out at the regular high school. That was just a little secret of mine. I never let them know I listened to Michael Bolton's Soul Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I probably, probably would have got my ass whooped. You probably shouldn't be letting me know that now. <laughs> Oops, did I say that? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man. I got some. I got some skeletons. I, I want to ask you about uh, about working with Bilal Oliver, um, mm -hmm. with whom you've worked for many many years. Yes, um, the two of you met in college, right? Yes. We both got, Bilal's from Philly, I'm from Houston. We both got full scholarships to the new school um, in Manhattan. And um, when you first go there, they put all the new students in a room and basically call you call your names and they just make random bands and you just play together. And um, we actually didn't play together, but I just saw him sing with another band. He's like, oh, I was like, man, he's ridiculous. And he heard me play. He's like, oh, man, you're ridiculous. And there was only six black people at the school, so we just knew each other. <laughs> <laughs> so we just became really, really, really cool from day one. And 
here we are, 15 years in. Same thing. It's my brother right there. He's my favorite vocalist. Is there, I was thinking of playing, there's a couple of uh, songs that you recorded with him on your very first album. Uh-huh. Uh, Mood. Is is there one that maybe you'd like to uh, talk about a little bit? Uh, yeah, well, I like the Maiden Voyage and the Maiden Voyage that's on there. And there's a subtle hint of Radiohead mixed in there. A, a mashup that I came up with a long time ago actually I actually redid it again on my in my element record more blatant because I could actually get it cleared um, so on mood this album mood we're talking about I, I didn't have the means to get it cleared I was in a small label we couldn't get the radio head cleared so I just hinted at it I invited Bilal to the studio to come put something on it and I didn't know what he was gonna do he didn't tell me what he was gonna do he didn't know what he was gonna do He's went into the booth and started making sounds. And my producer was like, what is he doing? I don't like the, what's happening? And I was like, I don't know, but he's a genius. Just let him do what he does. Because he went in there and started going, bzzz. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden it turned into this beautiful sea of sound. Let's take a listen to the Robert Glasper trio from Robert Glasper's very first album, 2004's Mood. Uh, featuring Bilal with a version of Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage with a little bit of interpolation of Radiohead on top of it. So Radiohead isn't something that you hear a lot of um, in, <laughs> you know, her, usually in, in traditional jazz, Herbie Hancock is like, uh, is controversial enough. Right. <laughs> uh, just because you can kind of dance to it. Right. So r- right from the start, you were interested in expanding the boundaries of what jazz could be. Yes. Um, it seems like there are a lot of folks in the jazz community who are interested in maintaining jazz essentially as uh, 
as a museum, as something that that can be that we can be reverent of, right? Certainly, but that shouldn't expand, right? <laughs> um, and who said that? Who said, "Hey, wait a minute, jazz shouldn't expand." <laughs> All it's ever done was expand. That's all it did. It always moved. It always changed. And I'm trying to figure out what person said, you know what? Let's stop it right here. And it should never, it should stop growing. Like, I want to I want to meet that person. Because jazz to begin with never did that. It always moved. It always expanded. It always changed. It always, you know, it, it, it always morphed into other things. And that's the spirit of it. That's what it's supposed to do. So I'm just doing what it's supposed to do. I'm playing jazz that's 2012. When you put on a record of mine in 2012, you're going to know the year. When you put on a, when you put on any Miles Davis album, you'll know the year. I could tell you what year most Miles Davis records are or at least what decade. You know what I mean? I could tell you, oh, that's Birth of the Cool. Ah, oh, that's, you know, Miles Around the World. Oh, that's, you know, that's this, that's that. That's 1964. You know, he always changed with the times. He always had uh, something different under him that um, let you know what year it was because he was always searching to do the new stuff. You know, that's why I admire Miles is somebody I admire because he never stayed stagnant. He never was in one place. He always moved. So whoever these people are that are saying, well, Jazz should stay here, they must not like Miles Davis or Herbie or any of our great, great, great innovators you know what i mean Thelonious Monk he was always doing what he wanted to do he was always doing something different you know what i mean he always moved and that's what it's supposed to do so i'm just literally doing what i think i'm i'm just being honest with myself and doing music that i like to do which is the music of now it's pretty simple do you think that um doing the music of now means um moving jazz music towards other genres of music and especially, you know, uh, more popular genres of music? Sure, because that's what they were doing in the 60s. You know, they didn't, uh, they were all kind of, you know, jazz was mixed with blues and you have certain songs. Jazz is mixed with, you know, show tunes and you have My Favorite Things. You know, that's this isn't this recipe isn't anything new. Just now that we eighty sixty years later, or whatever it is, we have more music to choose from to mix with <laughs> than Train did. We'll finish up with Robert Glasper after a quick break. Still to come, we'll talk about the time he hung out in Atlanta with Ludacris, which seems like the way to do it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. To become a world champion in freediving, Tanya Streeter learned to breathe like this. 
Ideas about air, breath, and breathing. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Readers have a lot of problems. How do you juggle your holds at the library? Well, how do you decide what to read next? What do you do when you find out an author you love is a huge trash baby? I'm Brea Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. And we're the hosts of Reading Glasses. We're here to solve all your reader problems and along the way, help you figure out your reader wheelhouse, which are the things that will absolutely make you pick up a book. Our listener favorites tend to be magic and a woman on a journey. And also birds for some reason. Your reader doghouse. Yeah, that's the things that'll make you avoid a book. Ugh, love triangles stress me out so much. Reading Glasses. Every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is pianist, composer, and producer Robert Glasper. As a solo artist, he's released almost a dozen albums, including the Grammy Award-winning Black Radio. He's also collaborated with some of the biggest names in music today, Kendrick Lamar, Herbie Hancock, Common, and Erica Badu, among many others. Anyway, we talked in 2012, right after Black Radio had been released. Let's get back into it. You've made some really beautiful music, both um, with hip-hop artists and, and with hip-hop as an inspiration. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, uh, the late hip-hop producer, uh, J.D., J. Dilla. Um, did you first meet him when he was working with Bilal? Yes. Um, that was one of the first producers that... When, when Bilal got signed to Interscope Records in 99, he got signed, I think. Um, that was one of the first producers they had um, slated to him to work with. So they flew Bilal out to Detroit to work with him, and he told them, yeah, I'm going to bring my boy out with me, you know, to work, to, work, to work with us. They're like, okay. So they flew me and Bilal out to Detroit, and we worked with Dilla for like a week and a half, two weeks, every day in his basement, hung out with him and, you know, um, talked about music, shared records. You know, he hit me to a lot of jazz records I, I wasn't hip to. Showed me where a lot of his samples came from, all kinds of stuff. I'm going to play um, an instrumental from uh, Slum Village's Fantastic Volume 2, which was probably... Um, Most critically acclaimed. Yeah, um, uh, the album that, that JD produced. Nobody else's drums sound like his drums because he sounded like an actual drummer. And when you're a, beat, a person that pays attention to beats, you know, his hi-hat, kick, snare all came together and sounded like it, there was a person at the drums, which is hard to do because all everything made sense as far as sound-wise. Oh, it sounds like somebody's at the drums. Be and that's because he also played drums. And so he understood the drums. But he also played the drums in the way that many people weren't hip to, didn't play like, because he had this thing, people call it behind the beat, you know, all kind of stuff, but where he laid everything was always, like, not right on. It didn't sound quantized. It wasn't exactly on, but at the same time, you can bob your head to it. Sometimes the snare will be early, bass drum be a little late, or bass drum be a little early, snare be a little late, hi-hat's kind of in the middle doing something. It was kind of drunk funkish. You're just in the middle, like, what's happening? Then there's the melodic content of it, where he's one of the 
the most melodic producer I know, you know, that's what really gravitated me towards his music. You know, the aesthetics of jazz and hip-hop owe something to each other, but they're also very different. I mean, I think that, for one thing, jazz is very deeply invested in the idea of the instrumental solo, which is not at all part of hip-hop. Well, I guess you could make... Well, the vocal. I was about to say, I guess you could make some argument for the vocal being something like an instrumental solo. Uh-huh. Because it's improv a lot of times. Sometimes it's... Sometimes. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's uh, off the cuff. Um, freestyled, if you will. Sure. But I think, I, I think that it's... I, I think you're stretching there. It honestly depends. And it depends on who you're going to see. You know, you go see Q-Tip live, he's probably going to freestyle. You go see, I'm just naming people that I've been on stage with and pretty much nine times out of ten, I know they're going to freestyle at some point. You know what I mean? But for the most part, now when you when you add, I have records into it, you know, I have albums, I got songs that people know, you got to do the songs. You know what I mean? But I, I, I know what you're saying. If you go to a jazz show, you're going to see more improvisation. And I also think that, you know, there's also an element of, dance music versus not dance music in the sense that most hip-hop certainly not all hip-hop but most hip-hop is either dance music or has its roots in dance music and one of the essential elements of dance music is repetition Mm -hmm. um and you know jazz going back to the birthplace of jazz what was jazz when it was first made yeah sure but it it has it has substantially changed not been that for since since right but again that's what i'm saying the birth of all this stuff comes from the father to the son right no the father jazz in the 30s was all dance music that's what it was for that was the purpose and it was very repetitious it was a big band the beat was ching shake it ing shake it ing shake it ing shake it ing the bass was doom 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 and horns were pop pop spot up pop spot it up pop it up pop up pop repetition and then it and then it morphed into something else. And the same thing with jazz, same thing with hip hop. You know? Repetition. Dance music. I mean hip hop and jazz is the same thing. And everybody's like, oh, you know, hip hop cats, you know, they always it's all about drugs and women and and alcohol and what was jazz? <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I'm not sure I can support hip hop because I've heard a lot of hip hop artists smoke jazz cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all the same. You know, they learned from hip hop cats learned from jazz. Jazz was the first of all that because jazz was the hip hop of its time. It was the newest, coolest, dopest, most cutting edge music of the time, all the time. And that's what's missing about it now. Now they're reminiscing about that time period instead of keeping it cutting edge and new all the time. Robert, I, I need to ask you. One last thing. Yes. Um, I saw on uh, I saw on the internet that you went to a stri- strip club with Ludacris. Uh huh. And that is like I don't know. I can't even. That's like going to see the Last Supper with Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know. Is that real? Yeah, I was in Atlanta and I did a gig with Ludacris. <laughs> That though that was what earlier this year or last year I can't remember, um, it might have been January. But um, yeah, a friend of mine is his music director, and Ludacris and Red Bull put on this whole big concert thing, and it was like Ludacris um, versus this rock band, 
And the whole point of it was Ludacris was taking three of their songs and changing it into Luda style hip hop. And the rock band took three Ludacris songs and changed it into their style. Get of to rock. the going to the strip club with Ludacris part, Robert Glasper. And then uh, after that, we went to the strip club and partied. And I partied with Ludacris at the strip club. <laughs> That's something you can tell your grandchildren about, Robert Glasper. Uh, of course, but the same, you know what's funny though? He was standing up against the wall, quiet. He was not the ludicrous that you think you would see on the videos and stuff like that. He was just chilling, you know, really, 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 really chilling. Good guy. Well, Robert Glasper, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Robert Glasper, his recent album, which again, we will have to bleep the name of Your Feelings, is up for R&B Album of the Year at this year's Grammys. Will he win? We'll find out in March. Let's listen to his Grammy-nominated single, Better Than I Imagined, featuring another past guest of our show, a favorite past guest, Michelle Indege Ocello. In the scramble to get a flight, I lost my phone. And I'm calling you from the hotel phone. I couldn't get a flight back to the States. <laughs> I realize you're the only number I know by heart. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where just this very week, my daughter learned to ride a bike. And only two days later, when the road in front of my house was blocked by an enormous crew cab pickup truck, she screamed, hey, get out of my way. I'm biking here. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, Jesus Ambrosio, and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the band The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it all these years. If you want to hear the latest about what we're up to, you can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews up there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.